of 1 Peter for a few weeks, you notice that the way that Peter is speaking, yes, to the household codes, as we've covered, a way in which individual Christians are to live out their faith in a difficult context, right? The Greco-Roman society. And so far, he deals with the first household code as we have slaves and masters. In the difficult way that a slave is to be obedient, submissive, uh, not subversive, but he's actually supposed to honor the head of household and pursue his good. We know this because, again, Peter says, Christ left an example for you in your difficulty. So you, you are going to suffer difficulty at the hands of another individual. Very likely, it is going to be the head of household. And Peter then reminds you, your, your duty, however, is unto the head of household. Um, to remain honorable and faithful, not uh, you know, uh, full of bitterness and acrimony toward the head of house, but actually pursuing his good. Um, and this is a gracious thing. And, and it makes sense, right? Because in order to pursue somebody's good, who you otherwise feel reflexively that you cannot stand, is going to be a gracious thing. That is, that God is going to have to enable you to rise above the difficult person-to-person -person situation, whether it's in work, whether it's in marriage, whether it's in uh, any number of web of relationships, in order to perform faithfully in that difficult situation, you are going to need God's help. You're going to be, need to be a person of prayer. That's why Peter says, you know, it is going to be a gracious thing to work out a difficult relationship and be found faithful in it. So on the one hand, he covers, you have an example from the household principles, the household codes, how to behave. But I want you to draw your attention to the fact that he also speaks here of the passion of Christ. That which we celebrated this Thursday evening together as a church family on Maundy Thursday and then on into Good Friday. Peter is covering the example of Christ from the passion of Christ. This is very clear. You'll see it in the text in just a moment. But you know he can draw upon this analysis as he speaks these individuals. Why? Because we covered long ago just how meaningful it was for Peter himself. You remember he was there. Um, and it was what we could say is less than his best performance. The night of his denial, the hours leading up to Christ's trial, and then moving towards his execution. So Peter speaks to people in this little text here, drawing upon what he eyewitnessed in Christ in the hour of betrayal, and then as he speaks in the end of our text about the fruits of the resurrection. Notice how he does so just briefly as we scan the text. Look at verse 20. Three. Well, I'll, I'll jump in at 22. Now, again, he's speaking of an example, but he's also now casting it in the night of Christ's passion, the hours of trial. Verse 22. This is the summary piece that you take away, and we're going to build on in just a moment here. But we have to get this right. Uh, um, he, that is Jesus Christ, he committed no sin. Let, let that be a standalone in your mind. Um, you need that statement. Because you, myself included, we together, collectively, individually, we, we are not that person. 
We are sinners. We're sinners by birth and natural generation from our parents. And then we're, we're sinners by performance. You see the deeds, the thoughts, the, the words, uh, everything validates that we are not the ones who have committed no sin. So our immediate, our, our, our spiritual ears should perk up at the statement by Peter that when we think of our Lord, we think this. Because he is our Lord because he committed no sin. That, that's the refuge for the sinner. So he starts the text this way, begin, uh, moving toward the passion, the night of Jesus' passion, and the ending in resurrection. He committed no sin. To expand upon it, he then says, neither was deceit found in his mouth. And he gives you an example of when this was happening. The temperature was turned way up. Now again, it, it, to the slave and to the master's relation, or to any other situation that we, outside of this historical context, face relationally. He was in a tight spot. And he committed no sin in it. Now again, you're not going to be that performer. You cannot be. But it's significant for you, it's saving for you that he was. But then that also, by faith that terminates in him and rests upon him for salvation, it puts you in a place, by the power of his spirit, to somewhat follow in his steps... Not impeccably, not perfectly. That ship sailed way back with Adam in the garden. But he gave you by his spirit, through salvation, a way, a means, an empowering presence in your life to some measure follow in a meaningful way, in difficult spots, follow his example. So he explains it from the picture of the passion that night. Notice in the text, when he was reviled... This is an example of a Christian and a pilgrim on the way in a difficult set of circumstances. Now looking to your example, who was impeccable, but yet now empowers you to conceive in your mind when you're reviled. How could you respond? Well, I'll tell you this. Our Lord, he did not revile in return. Now, again... Drawing upon the night of the Passion, we, we could pick a couple of spots that Peter is referencing here on the, on the night of our Lord's uh, mock trial and moving towards his execution. You recall the Roman guards. You go back to the Passion narratives in the Gospels where it's moving to Christ uh, 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 right past the uh, trial, moving into his execution, and his carrying the cross is being put upon the cross and the crowds that are watching and gawking and gathering. You remember, they reviled him. You can speak of the Roman soldiers in that context. They mocked him. Do you remember the people saying, he can save other people, supposedly. Why can't he save himself? Come on down. What did he do? Did he mock them back? Did he revile them back? No, he committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, and I can tell you he was, I was there. Think of the thief on the cross and the words that are recorded. Two men who were being crucified with him in that hour. One who then proceeded to mock him. He was reviled. In the most difficult set of circumstances, death, yes, and then they're always clear to add death, yes, but death on a cross. He was reviled in those moments, and he didn't revile in return. 
going on in the text, looking at the passion of Christ. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But there was a refuge for him in those moments that was beyond vengeance. And you notice what it is in the, in the last portion of verse 23. In place of vengeance and, and threatening, he, he did something distinct and different and empowering. Which is the same thing to the slave, to the master, or to you today in your most difficult moments. Again, when you find another human being as the object of your wrath, as the reason for your set of circumstances, thinking that the way in which I could be restored and have sanity and courage to move forward is when I get that person back, or when I expose them for what they are. This sense of the object of your wrath instead of the object of your faith. This is the distinction that is drawn on Christ on the cross. He didn't look down and think, I know what I'll do to you next. What did he do to set us an example? How do we follow in his footsteps? Notice the text. He continued to entrust himself to him who judges justly. This is the ethical pattern for the Christian. Again, you won't do it perfectly. You cannot do it perfectly. Thank goodness for the good news announcement that there's a solution to your imperfections. And it began in the text where he committed no sin is the solution. But you can meaningfully follow him. He continued to entrust himself. And you can think of how Peter would write that to this difficult life setting and the folks who are elect exiles and sojourners, who he's writing to here in his epistle, it would be meaningful for them to understand in this difficult providence, I can find a measure of joy. I can find a measure of encouragement and courage to persevere by entrusting myself to him who judges justly. You remember on the cross, Recorded, Luke records it in chapter 22. That at, at the area of, at the moments of crucifixion, he committed his spirit to God the Father. And then breathed his last. And the chronology of that is significant. That it was all the way to the very end. And then for our benefit, it is recorded. That all the way to the very last breath, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. So to us as well, that follow in his footsteps, that, that restoration uh, may not come. It may not be a fast rollout where things that are hard turn around and become things better. And it, and it somehow vindicates your faith in this moment. I held on for three weeks and things turn around. It may be, it may never turn around. Until the very last. Of which it may only turn around because you're here no longer. That's the reality of this age. Well then how do I keep going? If I, if I, if I, if I don't know for sure I'll be publicly vindicated by my in front of my colleagues. How will I hang on then? I'm waiting for that moment of vindication. No, 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 no. Vengeance isn't belonging to you. 
It's an entrusting of yourself to him who judges. Knowing by faith he judges justly. And then he breathed his last. Peter covers this passion here in this text, and it's one more contribution across the pages of Scripture to the consistency of the testimony of the righteousness of Christ. The testimony of Scripture regarding the meaning of Christ's death is very clear. I hope to help you with it this morning. I feel when I speak to saints on resurrection, or, 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 or the resurrection realities, or we speak of the gospel, sometimes we can think, as we speak to saints, that, that everyone's got their mind wrapped around it, and, and they're, they're enraptured by its meaning, and they ascend through faith every Lord's day, but the creatureliness of us also abides. Sometimes it feels like we've heard it a thousand times. Um, of course, we would not maybe roll our eyes at it and suggest as much, but it can emotionally, mentally spiritually sometimes feel that way. I want to be helpful. I want us to think about the meaning. Not just the fact of, but the meaning of Christ's death. The church, and we speak of the church Catholic, for centuries has summarized the very clear text, such as this one that we're going to look at just for a few moments, has consistently for centuries summarized this very clear testimony. I don't even think it's this one text. It's the summary of all the texts that speak on our Lord's atoning sacrifice. It's a clear testimony. I hope to make it even more so with you this morning. The clear testimony of our Lord's death and then we'll end on resurrection as Peter does at the end of this text. But the clear testimony of the meaning of Jesus' death is summarized this way. I want to say this to you and then I'm going to unpack it. The, the way that you think of the death of Christ. And I'm not saying in a theological classroom for the idea that we understand it. I'm saying for you individually as an individual sinner. Think of it this way. This is the summary of the church for your benefit as we look at the texts of atonement. Penal substitutionary atonement. This is something you, you, you don't want to think, oh, okay, that's often in the seminary classroom somewhere. You want to think, this is for me. Like, what's the best way for me to get my arms wrapped around the meaning of Jesus' death on my behalf? Not just the fact of, but the meaning of it. That I can help you. Penal substitutionary atonement. That, that, that is not something obscure and hard to grasp. Something maybe unfamiliar, but we need to lay hold of it. The point of such a theological summary, again, is not to be cute or sophisticated, but to clarify. That's what we're in it for, to clarify, to be helpful. And, and, and so please, don't hear a technical term and drown out. But it's for your sake, it's to be helpful to clarify the accomplishments of Christ's death by providing a fuller understanding of what exactly took place on the cross. When Peter says in verse 24, which is where we'll be this morning beginning, he himself, and we've sang each and every hymn, the readings that we've had in our liturgy this morning, it brings us to this point where Peter says to you and to me, he himself, none other 
than the Lord. Jesus Christ, the same who in 22 committed no sin. In verse 24, he, that one, himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. What does that mean? What does it mean that he took my place and bore my sin? We had a conversation in our home one of the conversations you have, just, you know, you, you take up a topic and you discuss a few things or you see a need and you bring it up. And we had a conversation in our house, the whole family, not just kids or parents, two kids, but kids, parents, parents, kids, family. And I asked a question and I would ask it to you as well, because it, it can sound weird right at first. And then you get caught off guard. But the question would be, what is the one sin that Jesus didn't have to die for. What's the one? Right? So, so he died for our sins. He died for all the sins. But then uh, to ask it a different way. What, but what is the one sin he didn't have to die for? And then you're like, oh man, maybe there is a sin he didn't die for. Because it's being asked in a different way. So I wonder what that one would be. I know by catechesis, he died for all of them, but now I'm being asked in a weird way. Maybe there is one. What would be remaining? Of course, the obvious point being, we marginalize our sin. And we move it into kind of an ambiguous dying for all sins. But then our sins are, we get into the category of respectable nature. They're just trite. They're failures. They're bad ideas. Or follow some politician's way that he apologizes. And you can just take the language out from there. And be like, you know, I, I did less than my best. And I'm committed to doing better. However you want to frame it. But that's the idea. So then circle back and ask yourself, but did Jesus had to die for that one? If there was no others, would he die? Like if you're the elect, would, would, would he have to die for you? for, I don't know, you know, lying on an expense report by 85 cents. Would it be like, oh, no, that, that's, that's not the idea. It is the idea. It's that particularized. So again, when we consider the term, the first of our three terms, penal substitutionary atonement, when we consider the first term penal, I'm sure you can think of it the penal code. Right? It's not tricky. Don't get lost in the idea like a theological term or jargon. Don't get lost. It's clarifying and helpful. The term penal simply refers to our sin in judicial and moral terms. Think of that. Judicial and moral terms. What would be judicial? Think of it. Our sin, each and every individual one, is set against God's holy law. We sang a few minutes, holy, holy, holy is the Lamb. Crying holy, holy. Okay, right, so, so that holiness of which we give praise for, your individual sin or transgression or trespass, how, however it's categorized in Scripture, your wrongdoing is set into that theater of holy, holy, holy. Your infraction is set in that theater, and that is the juxtaposition between your wrongdoing against what? Like, where's the barometer? 
W where is it? It's against him who is holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty. Your infraction is set against that. The question then has to be, where's the wiggle room? There's the stark contrast. Here's your infraction, and here's God who's transcendent and holy. Penal means your sin is set against that theater of holiness and transcendence. No matter what, it doesn't have to be a grave sin, or as the Catholics say, mortal and venial. Thank you. Mortal or venial. Exactly. It said all sins are mortal. It's penal, meaning a penalty was due to us from God, the judge, for our wrongdoing and for our failure to meet his claims. That, that, that is, again, when we think of our sin, you, you need to keep in mind your infractions. It's not just the things you've done. It's the things you have failed to also do. This is kind of, uh, maybe now it gets lost a little bit more in the language. Sins of omission, things you've left out. Sins of commission, things that you know you've done when you knew they were wrong to do. You're over here doing things that are wrong. Morally unrighteous. Cast in terms of scripture as sin. Which Peter says he bore the, our sin in his body. Our sin are those things of which we perform and those things we fail to perform that God requires. Thus, a penalty is due to us. To begin our understanding, there are three foundational truths to understanding our text this morning in terms of penal substitutionary atonement. I want to walk through it in three ways. Well, I guess in three points. The first one, if you want to kind of track where I'm going, I'm going to say all three points up front and then we'll work through them. The very first one is understanding the threat. This is a way to understand this, the meaning of Christ's death. We have to understand the threat. Number two, understanding the deliverance. So this is kind of the bird's eye view of where we're going. We're going to understand the threat. We're going to understand then the deliverance. And then the third and final piece will be understanding the result. So you have to perceive the threat, understand the deliverance, and then understand the result. The very first one, understanding the threat. I'm sure that you're very well aware. If you've been a Christian for any season of time or you've been around the Christian church for a season of time, and you've heard the language. You've heard it maybe at least in this introduction. You understand the threat to your life. The threat to your life and to your joy, to your flourishing, both now and in the age to come, is your sin. How is that understanding the threat? You understand sin in a basic concept, but please understand it in the biblical language. The wage earned. This is what I'm giving you for understanding the threat. Please understand. The wage earned through sinning is death. That, 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 that's the wage you're gaining. Or you could flip it and be like, well, maybe Paul means it's the wage I'm paying. I, however you want to conceive the currency either you're receiving or you're providing is the currency of death. That, that's the concept. That, that is the only wage or currency that we receive through our penalty, through our sinful behavior, is death. You see, Scripture's testimony is completely clear. We've... Listen to large-scale ministries. I mean the variety that like produce music and the variety that are you know filling stadiums with ten thousand people. That shy away when pointedly asked about the category of sin. 
they'll say something that, that is, again, political in nature. I think that's probably why there's so much rise in their numbers, because they're politically savvy. Um, something to the effect of, uh, no matter the topic, but we're talking about something that no one likes to just expose and discuss, but the idea of sin, and they'll say something like, oh, well, we don't make statements. We have conversations. Notice the rhetorical kind of pivot and move. Like, well, well, no, I'm just asking quite simply, straightforwardly. What would, so, so what would the penalty of sin be? Well, it's when we talk about sin, so, so then I, 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 I make a distinction, make a distinction within a distinction, and yet a final distinction so that, so that we can get to something none of us know what we're talking about anymore. Simply straightforward, the testimony of Scripture isn't tricky. It's very straightforward. And I say testimony of scripture because we're talking about 66 canonical books. Not like, well, that's what Peter said. But again, you got to remember, Peter has this education or Peter's in this area of the world. You got to understand what was at stake in the context. I'm just saying the testimony of the entirety of Holy Scripture is straightforward on the category of sin. It's fundamental to understand the gospel that sin and this is, the, again, if I could give you a summary, sin, when it has had its perfect work, is fatal. And the divine punishment for that sin is the death of the sinner. If you could flip back just a couple of pages in your text of scripture to James chapter 1. I just want you to see, again, I say the testimony um, James is right before Peter, and, and I just want you to see just one simple text to, to, to help us understand the perfect work of sin is fatal. That's the end game. That's the wage that's earned. That's the wage that will be paid. By who? By him who judges justly. So, so, so James says the same thing, trying to help us out. Verse 14 of chapter 1, if you're in James, again, it, w w look at the fatal character. There's an end to sin. Verse 14, but each individual is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. You, you see, you see that again, each individual, where does, the, where does the draw to do wrong come from? From the individual. It's not all environmental. It, it, it is well within the DNA of each and every one of us that we want to move toward that object. We're enticed. But what's the end game? Verse 15. Then desire, right, from the, heart, from the own individual, then the desire, when it has conceived, gives birth. It births when a sin. And sin, and this is what I say about its, its perfect work, is fatal. Sin, when it is fully grown, that, that, that's the perfect work. When it's fully grown, notice the end result, the wage that is paid. It brings forth death. Again, when sin has had its perfect work, it is fatal. The divine punishment of sin that is birthed within us is indeed the death of the sinner. When we speak of death and dying, it's critical to understanding life and living in the gospel. Death and dying. If we were to go back, we don't have time, but if we were to go back to where this narrative story of Scripture begins, you'd go back as we have months ago and study the text of Genesis. You're back there in Genesis and you're seeing the movement of Adam in the garden. Adam is told not to eat. 
If he eats, the day he eats, he dies. The covenant of works that God establishes with men. You eat, you die. But in what way? He dies physically. We all have experienced that. Family, friends, others, news stories of individuals dying physically. It's a part of our fallen condition. But it's not just physical death that man must fear. But Adam's death was spiritual and eternal. Describing this death situation, J.I. Packer comments this. He says, quote, standing thus under this sentence... We are helpless. So you have, please understand and, and, and track this with me. Again, as Christians, perhaps we feel like, I've heard this. I can kind of see where this is going. Take it in. Each step. Revisit it in your mind. Standing thus under this sentence, death, physical, spiritual, eternal, we are helpless either to undo the past. You can't go back in time. Or to shake off sin in the present. I can't get rid of it. It's a part of who I am. And thus, we have no way of averting what threatens us. This then moves us to portion number two. As I mentioned to you, three foundational truths of understanding penal substitutionary atonement. The first is penal, the penal code. It is when God judges our sin, not in isolation, but against his holy and perfect law. Moves us to, from understanding the threat to part two, understanding then the deliverance. The deliverance in the text, as you notice, I mentioned it to you already, but the point of your deliverance is in verse 22. That's the confessional piece that you must rejoice over. It's the statement number two, understanding the deliverance is this, number two, Christ committed no sins of his own. So the wage earned, point one, the understanding of the threat, the wage earned through sinning is death, but understanding the deliverance is point two, Christ committed no sins of his own. That is He's our substitute. Again, verse uh, 21 and 22. Notice up in the text, for to this you have been called. Christ also suffered. But you notice his suffering. It was for you. Yes, he left you an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. But you must remember, it was for you and in and of himself, verse 22, he committed absolutely no sin. This picture of Christ who committed no sin and indeed did suffer unjustly because he suffered for you, not for himself, combines two aspects of the atonement. I hope you'll understand these and rejoice over them. Number one, this text of his willingness to suffer for you and that he committed no sin. And then verse 24 reinforces he himself bore, not his own sins then, whose? Ours. It combines two aspects of the atonement. Number one, his willingness to stand in your stead. His willingness. When you think God harsh in your providence, and we do at times, all of us, uh, 
um, some more than others, due to the nature of their tragedies or hardships. Um, but all of us, nonetheless, in a certain degree and kind and time, feel God harsh. Maybe through our own sin that we've wandered away um, through bad habit, and we just feel a coldness of heart that remains. And then due to coldness, the sins that just continue to escalate, we feel the distance in our own walk. Perhaps we even doubt we even possess one. And then in order to kind of feel better about our own selfish feelings, we then pivot and blame him. You know, for whatever had happened in our life that brought us to this place, rather than, as James says, our own desire. When you think him harsh, remember this text. He suffered for you. Remember the nature of his willingness to go to the cross on your behalf. Again, he didn't bear his own sins on the cross. He bore ours. The second aspect of the atonement that this combines is his moral, moral qualification to do so. Again, it's one thing to be willing to die for someone. It's wholly another to be morally qualified before God to do so. It's essential to our understanding of our substitute that not only was he willing, but he was able. Verse 22, he committed no sin. That makes him morally capable of performing his act in verse 24. He died for my sin. He bore it in his body on the tree that day. Again, Peter explains that Christ suffered as your substitute. And when you think of substitute, it's simple. You go to the, the, the Oxford English Dictionary and just look up the term substitute. Or, or whatever you've seen in, in, in the NCAA tournament so far. Someone runs the clock and, and comes in and substitutes for another. The concept is simple. But the act is glorious. When Christ died as your substitute, that meant he was supplying your need. Meeting your obligations so that you no longer have needs before God or obligations to perform. And remember, if we doubt those obligations and get lost in just how bad our needs really were, Remember, as he explains, right before he himself bore our sins in the text, you notice the statement just before in the end of verse 23. Never forget, God judges justly. One author makes this comment, quote, The agony and passion of Jesus were penal. In the sense that in that dark hour, he had to realize to the full divine reaction against sin in the race. Again, think about it this way. He stood in your stead. He was willing, yes, but he was able and did. The agony and passion of Jesus were penal 
in the sense that in that dark hour, he had to realize to the full the divine reaction against sin in the race. What's the reaction? God who judges justly. And that without doing so, without standing in our stead, he could not have been our redeemer from our sin. This brings us to our third foundational truth, which is built upon the other two. Number one, understanding the threat. The wage that is earned through our sinning is death. Number two, understanding then our deliverance, Christ's willingness and moral qualification to do so. He committed no sins of his own. Brings us then to our third understanding of the atonement and its meaning for our lives. Understanding the resolve. What is the resolve? You see it in the text. It's very clear. Peter says it right after bore on the tree. And then he, he, he states it. And then he overwhelmingly clarifies its meaning. In case we're lost in it. But notice, notice the, the, the truth of understanding the result is by his wounds we are healed. That, that, that's the result of the deliverance. He, Christ understood the threat. He was willing and morally qualified to undergo as our substitute. And as our substitute, he brought us healing. That's the good news. That's what you call the gospel. And so it is where he says, he himself bore our sins. Remember, he was willing and able and he did it. Where? In his body. How so? On the tree. What was the result? You see it very next in the text. That we might die to sin. Not die, but die to the sin. So, so where did it go? It's in his body. How did he bear it? He bore it in his body on the tree that we might then be dead to that. Well, then where do we go? We live to righteousness. That's the exchange. In case you lose it, in case you don't understand, that he, he died that I might then die in him, but I die to the sin. And then he imparts to me his life. Of what quality? Righteousness. Maybe we could say at the end of that statement, we could say, uh, 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 well, to put simply, and then read the last portion of verse 24. By his wounds, you have been healed. Note carefully that our being healed Dying to sin and giving a life principle of righteousness. Please, please understand this last piece. I'm working on part three and I'm working toward my conclusion. Please understand this. That the fruit of my living to righteousness and of my wounds having been healed. This is the fruit of resurrection. You see, piece it together this way from part one to part two to part three. Because Jesus was born sinless, this we receive in the gospel testimonies. And further, not just he was born sinless, 
But further, he committed no sin while living, which Peter explicitly states. He committed absolutely no sin. Then he gives you a few examples the night of his passion. But because Jesus was born without sin, and further, he committed no sin while living, death could not remain upon him. Do you understand? That's because we perceive the threat. Where does death come from? It's the wage, either paid or received. It's the currency of sinning. But he didn't sin. Then there is no currency of death. Then what remains? Resurrection. Again, scripture everywhere explains that death claims it is laid hold. We go back again one last time. We could go all the way back to, to the covenant of works between God and Adam in the garden. Here's the tree. See it? There's the fruit. Don't eat of it. The day you eat of it, you will die. How so? In what capacity? Physically, spiritually, eternally. That death will lay claim on you in all aspects. What will its authority in my life be? Your own sin. Well, what if I didn't commit any? Then you would live. Scripture everywhere explains that death claims all who sin. Christ, as Peter makes perfectly explicitly clear, committed absolutely no sin. Thus, death had no claim on him. The truth, then, of your being healed, for Peter to say to you, and for you to truly believe in this Lord's day, that this moment, this Easter Sunday, that by his wounds you have been healed to walk in righteousness, to live and experience faith and its fruits is owed to none other than, yes, Jesus' substitutionary death, but also his resurrection. Paul makes this explicitly clear. I'm sure you're familiar with this text, but he also, Paul says it the same in 1 Corinthians 15, 17. Hear this. If Christ has not been raised, let's just ask it a different way. Because we're saying he has been. By his wounds that he bore for me, I've been healed. Well, I can't be healed if he hasn't raised. I would still be dead in my sins. Well, let's ask it that way. So, Paul, if Christ then has not been raised, your faith, just being honest, is futile. The result of him not being raised is not that by his wounds you have been healed. The result, rather, you are still dead in your sins. But if we continued on to verse 18, 1 Corinthians 15, right after Paul says, let's just ask it, if Christ has not been raised, your faith that you think you possess, it's futile. And you haven't been healed by his wounds. You are still dead in your sins. But Paul continues. But in fact. Christ. You know this text. You're saying it in your mind. It's the joy of Easter. Christ. Has been raised. From the dead. Where he bore your sins. He is then the first fruits of those 
who have fallen asleep. You see, the result, not of just his dying on my behalf, but his lying dead for me and then raising three days later, is that by his wounds, I have been truly healed. Finally, then Peter concludes the text, and this is our last observation as we just wind down the text this Easter Sunday, but it's simply this. He concludes pastorally. You see, as he writes to the struggling exiles, the elect, the sojourner, he says, for you were straying, if you just put it in narrative story, think of it like this. You see, you were straying like sheep. Um, the straying is due to your own, as James said, your own desires. You were straying. That, 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 that's what you're doing. In your own desire, being carried away, birthing sin within you, you're on the path to death. This is who you were. This is, this is what takes place in the sinner's life. You're straying like a sheep. But now, because of Christ, but now, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. I want to read for you just one last text in closing then. Hear this text. You know it very well. Peter is telling you, I can tell you this in great confidence. And you're thinking, well, that's a neat image where Peter says, let me explain it to you like this. I, I, I'll make it up on the fly. You were like sheep straying. But because of this work, you're now returned. And it's like the sheep in a and uh, a shepherd, Who, who's an overseer. He's your bishop. He's your minister. But the minister of much more than the taste, the touch, the feel. He's the bishop or the minister of your soul. Where did Peter, what, what you think, Peter, that, that, is a, that is a beautiful picture. That I was like a helpless sheep and I've returned to the bishop of my soul. He pastors me. He nourishes me. He provides for me faithfully each Lord's day. Where would we have heard of such a discourse? John 10. I'll read it for you in our conclusion. This is undoubtedly what Peter's referring to. Jesus speaking to the disciples. Remember Peter's words. He's drawing upon this discourse. Verse 14 of John 10. I am the good shepherd. I know my own. And my own know me. Just as the Father knows me. I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. It's who Peter's talking to. That's the additional fold. Those beyond that immediate context. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock. And one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me. Because I lay down my life. That I may take it up 
again. To be clear, verse 18, to be clear, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. Let us pray. Our heavenly father, ours through Christ, who is our brother, our savior and our Lord. We come to you through him, the great shepherd and bishop of our souls, who indeed was willing Who committed no sin, but entrusted himself to you. Thus you love him, as he also loves the sheep. We praise you for your love. We praise you for your mercy. And when you look with pity upon us for our sinfulness, help us, though. We, do, we, we don't want to be remaining in our, our, our sinfulness, our, our, our the, the, the roots of our sin that remain within us, the, the, the trench that we dig for ourselves to be in, the rebellion we feel in our own heart and mind toward your mercy. You hold out, and yet we angrily and, and with bitterness turn away and somehow justify our own wickedness. Please help us by your spirit that as our Lord has promised, my sheep will hear me. Let us hear you in your word. Let us return. Let us follow after your mercy. Let us receive it, admitting our willful wrongdoing and experience the joy that's held out to us through forgiveness. Let us experience that, that indeed by your wounding on our behalf, we've been healed. Let us feel it, believe it, and experience the spirit changing our ethics and behavior to increase our joy through it. Help us. We give such great praise, and yet we're so feeble. Please help us renew a right spirit within us that we might experience the joy of your salvation this Easter Sunday. Thank you for laying down your life on our behalf. Thank you for taking up again that we might return. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Give you just a moment there of thoughtfulness. Invite the worship team up.